Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to Episode 4 of the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. This is our first episode since our release last week, and our feedback has been great. I really want to thank you guys who have reached out to me and uh, made kind comments. It's meant the world to me. And I also want to thank our previous guests, Dr. Neil Kravitz, Dr. Stephanie Rhodes, Chris Benson. They've done such an amazing job setting the stage with these first three interviews that I think really delivered a lot of value to you guys. And I'm just personally very grateful that they were willing to support me as we launch this new endeavor. Please share this podcast with your friends. If there's anyone out there that you feel would benefit from it or that would have an interest in listening to what we have to say, that would mean so much to me. And if you could leave us a review on iTunes so that other people who stumble across this podcast perhaps are more inclined to listen to it. Our guest today is a good friend of mine, Dr. Derek Bach, and we had a great discussion on how to improve your clinical skills. Dr. Bach is known for his work online in the Pragmatic Orthodontist and the Pragmatic Orthodontist Elite. So we had a great discussion on how to improve our clinical skills. We talked about the mindset that you need to make that improvement that you need a desire to improve, and that you need to hook up with mentors. And I think you guys are really going to love the discussion that we had. So I'm excited to bring that to you today. Every week we start our show with a tip or a book review. And today I wanted to review a book I read recently called Extreme Ownership. It was a fantastic book, and we'll jump right in and get started. Let's do it. Okay, so on today's review of the week, we're going to talk about the book Extreme Ownership. One thing I love about leadership and management is that the skills learned in one discipline often carry over into another. And it seems that there are endless sources of knowledge and inspiration, and they come from any number of diverse endeavors. The book Extreme Ownership by former U.S. Navy SEALs Jocko Wilnick and Leif Babin is really unlike any business book I've read in that it uses as its source material actual combat missions from the Battle of Ramadi in Iraq in 2006. The chapters always start with a first-hand narrative of a battlefield event and then translate the lessons learned from that event into actionable strategies that can be used by business leaders. And they even will set up a scenario that you can apply it to. Although running an orthodontic practice pales in significance compared to fighting a well-armed and intelligent insurgency, the skills and techniques discussed have direct application in leading people and maneuvering through challenging situations. In addition, much of the book is dedicated to altering the mindset of the reader, and I want you to indulge me for a minute while I quote this kind of longish passage from the book. The authors say, On any team, in any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. When subordinates aren't doing what they should, leaders that exercise extreme ownership cannot blame the subordinates. They must first look in the mirror at themselves. The leader bears full responsibility for explaining the strategic mission, developing the tactics, and securing the training and resources to enable the team to properly and successfully execute. 
If an individual on the team is not performing at the level required for the team to succeed, the leader must train and mentor that underperformer. But if the underperformer continually fails to meet standards, then a leader who exercises extreme ownership must be loyal to the team and the mission above any individual. If underperformers cannot improve, the leader must make the tough call to terminate them and hire others who can get the job done. It is all on the leader. As individuals, we often attribute the success of others to luck or circumstance and make excuses for our own failures and the failures of our team. We blame our own poor performance on bad luck, circumstances beyond our control, or poorly performing subordinates, anyone but ourselves. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept, and taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. But doing just that is an absolute necessity to learning, growing as a leader, and improving a team's performance, end quote. I think that's awesome. And this is kind of the stuff that you get in this book. It's highly motivational. There's practical things that you can apply in the way that you're leading and directing your practice and really the way that you look in the mirror and reflect on yourself as, as a leader and as a owner of a practice. So I highly, highly recommend this excellent book. Dr. Derek Bach grew up on the South Shore of Massachusetts. He went to Tufts University School of Dental Medicine in Boston and met his wife, Dr. Anoki Dahlia Bach, uh, in dental school. Following his graduation, he moved uh, to the Midwest to complete a residency in orthodontics at the University of Illinois at Chicago, while his wife was training to be a pediatric dentist at Indiana University. He and his wife are the owners of Forest Orthodontics and Pediatric Dentistry with two locations north of Chicago, Illinois. He is also the moderator of the Pragmatic Orthodontist and the Pragmatic Orthodontist Elite Study Clubs. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast, Dr. Bach. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Good, good. I'm glad to have you. So you've got four kids. You're an avid golfer. Your website says you play the guitar. Uh, I haven't picked up my guitars in probably close to a year. I've been a little busy with all the other projects, but yes, I still play. Um, I'm probably a little rusty. Yeah, I love reading people's bios on their website and being like, but like I have that I play the piano on mine and, and I do, but I pretty much just like, I play the organ at church and that's kind of it. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I have on, I have on there too that I, I do triathlons and I haven't done one of those in probably three years. So yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, you got the guitar. I can play the piano. Doesn't Kyle Fagel play drums or something? Yeah. You know, we could, we could get something going here. Saddest band in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Three white orthodontists. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, tell our audience a little bit about your journey from graduating residency to where you are today. Yeah, it's a, it's a convoluted story. Um, you know, as a Boston kid, if you can not hear it in my accent, it's because I hide it amazingly well. Um, my wife, who grew up in the Midwest, who met in Boston, she dragged me out to do my residency in Illinois under the premise that we were going home back to the East Coast, um, which was, you know, the first sign that she was way smarter than, than I yeah. was. So that was never going to be a reality. <laughs> um, she beat me to a job. She got out of her, her residency uh, a little sooner than I did. Um, she beat me to a great job, and it was really hard to move out after that. And, you know, we opened our own practice uh, about 
eight and a half years ago, and it's evolved into two locations. Uh, this would be my third practice. I sold one a couple of years ago. Um, both of my current practices are pedo ortho practices. So it's a unique business model that everybody wants to talk about, but I failed, um, at more ways than you can imagine in that business model and kind of figure it out the, the way out. So everybody wants to, see how I figured my way out. So it's a good topic, a conversation. Sure, sure. So, I mean, is, do you think that that is a, a viable practice model or is it going to be a, an essential practice model? What are your thoughts kind of on, on the direction of that in terms of the industry as a whole? I think it's going to be a, a big practice model in the future. The fear that I have is that it's not going to be um, orthodontist run or owned, it's going to be majority of uh, those practices will be pediatric dentist owned and the orthodontists will be uh, the associates in that model. You know, with the ever increasing number of pediatric dental um, residents that are going to come out in the next five years, they're going to outnumber us at a certain point and they're already being trained to keep ortho in-house. Luckily for us, um, I haven't seen a lot of great or well-executed pedo-ortho business models, so there's still some time to kind of claim your territory, but it is going to be something uh, for the next 10 years for sure that you'll see an explosion in. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I agree. It does seem that those partnerships do kind of lean towards the pediatric dentist in the sense that, you know, they're kind of upstream of us in, in the life cycle of the you know, patient moving through the practice. Yeah, they control the patient referral base, um, you know, if it's their practice and they bring ortho in. So it's right. a hard one to get over. Just kind of generically here, do you have any advice for someone who's getting out of school, looking for an opportunity to get into practice ownership? Um, what what kind of things would you be looking for if you were getting out today? I, I would take it slower than I try to. And as you know, most of my friends and fellow orthodontists that are practice owners, you know, we try to rush right out of residency and buy something. We don't really understand the business of it. We don't really understand uh, clinical efficiencies or, you know, sticking the finish, as I call it, on the groups. I would take my first couple of years and, and try to get into a solid practice with solid clinicians that can mentor you on the business and the clinical efficiency side of what we do before you try to um, bear the burden of doing payroll and running a business that you don't really understand. That'd be my biggest piece of advice for any young orthodontist is take your time, find a mentor, um, and figure your, your stuff out first, or at least try to adopt their systems and start at some place and then floundering like a lot of us did for a while. I think there's, there's a lot to, I, I had the fortunate situation of buying a practice from someone who I ended up having a great relationship with and who kind of helped me with that mentorship role. But it was, it was astounding to me how much there was to learn about owning and operating a, a, an orthodontic practice. And that, that opportunity that you had is a Cole Johnson unicorn. They're just, there's not a lot of those opportunities no, out there. No, so. no, I, I feel incredibly lucky to, to, to have had that happen. Well, let me, let me switch gears here a little bit. You know, you're considered, I think, by your peers to be an excellent clinician. Um, and, and yet you also run this thriving practice. How do you how do you balance those two aspects of private practice? I mean, can can you do that? Can you kind of have your cake and eat it too? Do you think? 
You can uh, up to a certain point. Uh, and it's funny that everybody is, you know, views me as the clinical guy. And I mean, it could be that I run uh, in the pragmatic orthodontist as uh, currently 2,700 active members and engagement is crazy. And, and I run a geo specific group, the pragmatic orthodontist elite with 130 people there and their clinical groups. Although the pragmatic orthodontist elites kind of, you know, evolved into some business and clinical efficiencies, which is great. And, and there's a lot of good material there. Um, maybe it's just because I run two clinical groups that everyone's like, you're the clinical guy. And, you know, just from posting cases and um, mentoring over the last few years online, I've evolved into this clinical guy. The, the funny thing is I don't view myself as a clinical guy. You know, I understand mechanics, obviously, and, and efficiencies. And I think that the product that I, I put out is, is really nice most of the time. Um, but I'm just like everybody else, you know, I'm in it to, um, have a great culture and patient experience of the practice, but to make money. So my clinical efficiencies and my finishes and my product as I'm known for it was just, uh, kind of a resultant of me trying to make money and make everybody happy and kind of forge my way and make myself a little unique the, than my neighboring competitors. Well, I, I mean, I think the cases you put out there are pretty great. I mean, I, I'm sure everyone picks their good cases, but I think a lot of orthodontists would love to be able to put up, you know, some of the cases that you've shown. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell yourself too short there. I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty, pretty awesome stuff. Um, if, if someone, if someone came to you and said, Derek, you're the clinical guy. How would I, you know, improve myself clinically? What can I do to kind of up my game? You know, do you, do you have any advice? Are there courses or there, are there reading or visiting other offices? Like what if someone said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running a pretty successful practice, but I feel like I'm kind of clinically weak. Where, where could someone kind of take the next step there? That's a great question. I think you have to possess two things in order to improve. Um, the desire to improve, to actually look at your weaknesses and say, you know what, I don't like this about cases over and over and over again, or I feel really deficient in my abilities here. Just admitting that and saying, I'm going to change is the, the, the first step. It's like the number one you know, change that you need to make in order to get better. And then when you're online, whether it's on pragmatics or wherever, and you see somebody that's posting cases and they're posting finishes and, and they speak your language that you can understand what they're talking about, that mentor that's out there and you want to emulate them, you need to hook yourself up with that girl or that guy or whoever it is and learn from them and soak up the knowledge. There's so many of us out there that just dump IP there because, um, you know, it's the right thing to do for the profession that, you know, there's, there's so many pearls out there. If your mind is open to change, uh, if once you, you know, your belief possession is there, I, I think the world's your oyster. That's awesome advice. I think that this kind of surge of, generosity and sharing and among amongst orthodontists, especially online, uh, has been tremendously beneficial to me. And, you know, it's a little bit what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast is, is trying to share some of those things. Um, and I agree. I think if you, if you reach out to people, I've always been 
you know, I, I, I'm always kind of nervous to contact someone, you know, because I know how busy people can be and, and I don't want to be a burden. But, you know, I, I can't say that I've really gotten a bad reaction from someone if I've had a question or wanted to ask a favor or, or kind of get some tips. I think that we're all conditioned, you know, in residency and when we come out with this competition. And it's probably the number one thing that makes me happy in the last three years is the profession is evolving into more of an open share. And yeah. we're, we're casting those, those old habits away. And that makes me happy. It's a, a global, a global karmic win. Yeah. Good. So, you know, like I feel like one issue that I have when I'm, when I'm, you know, trying to improve my skills, you know, I've, I've done what you've, what you've said too. I mean, I know that there are specific areas, but, but sometimes I feel like I'm learning in such a scattershot way. You know, I get a little bit of this and then I get a little bit of this and then I'm distracted over here. And that's one thing I liked about my residency at St. Louis University is we had a, a, a real curriculum and it felt like I could organize my thoughts a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason why orthodontists are drawn to, you know, like systems or, or like gurus that have the answer to everything. Do you, do you think there's a place for that for like, you know, these prescribed systems or you know, philosophies or dogmas and orthodontists? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of the way that even at Illinois, the way that I learned, we had to, to break up cases into, you know, different compartments and you have to check off those boxes to make yourself go through that mental exercise to not miss anything. And I still do it in my practice every single day. And everyone's like, Oh, you're so old school that you still trace Cephs. And you know, after, you know, five or 6,000 finished cases, do I need to trace a Ceph anymore? No, absolutely not. I can look at a kid and say, I know exactly what we're going to do and sidestep it here and there. But I still trace a Ceph because it slows my brain down for 30 seconds to stare at it. And I go through a system to make sure that I don't miss it. And as I age, you know, your memory doesn't, doesn't really keep up with you. So it's good to have all those boxes kind of checked just to make sure you're not missing anything and that you process cases in the same way. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an area that I think I could improve on trying to, trying to structure the way I approach cases and, you know, like a pilot with a checklist. Um, you know, I, I wonder how many times they've done that in their career, but they still go through it and don't want to miss anything. Yeah, for sure. And it comes back to when you're first coming out of residency that if you buy a practice and you do a quick transition and you haven't learned all the systems and the checklists, how to process patients in the business checklist, you end up just becoming reactionary and putting out fires and trying to keep everything connected. Sometimes you have to um, go uh, slower to go faster and take a step back and organize yourself and then break everything down into systems. It's the same thing for clinical. Yeah. And I will say that you know, you have to learn from your cases. I see so many orthodontists when they're done with their case and they're retained, they're out the door and they've moved on instead of analyzing their finished product, good or bad and saying, what happened here? Cause not all of them are winners. You know, even with experienced clinicians in, in a biological system, things move sideways sometimes, but learning how it moved sideways and how you can sidestep that in the future. You have to analyze your cases. You have to review your cases when you're done and be honest with yourself. 
Yeah, I, I do a final report. I know that not everyone does, but it goes out to the dentists and to the patients. And I, I look at the case and I find that that's where the patterns start to emerge. You know, yeah. sometimes it's a, it's the same bracket that's in the wrong position every time, or it's, you know, it's, it's a torque issue or, you know, it's that class two that didn't quite get home. You know, it, I do see those things. Um, and I've definitely picked up like my own quirks or weaknesses or whatever they may be by reviewing finished cases. And I will say, depending upon the system that you use, not every quirk or every little issue that you see repetitively is fixable. It's just sometimes it's just the system and you have to know that you're going to put a detail bend there because it's an inadequacy of the system. I think I see a lot of orthodontists that are always searching to reposition or to cheat the system to eliminate every single, you know, variable. And it's just, it's just not possible. Yeah. And, and the other thing I think that I see or that I, I kind of detect in, in my own self is that, you know, sometimes like I'm looking at my mechanics or, or, or my torque prescriptions. I feel like I get, I get a piece of advice, but maybe I apply it in the wrong situation. Like I, I think, Oh, I get out of residency and I think MBT is the prescription I want to use. And then I realize that, you know, in my hands, it's just not a great non-extraction prescription. And it reminds me of, um, Ben Hogan, I guess, you know, he, he wrote a book yeah. on golf and, yeah. you know, Ben Hogan fought a hook his whole career, right? He was always uh, hooking the ball. And so yeah. he wrote this whole book and it's, it's like a book that a lot of beginners read. And when, when every beginner, basically their problem is that they're slicing it all over the place <laughs> and they're reading this book by Ben Hogan, who was hooking it all the time. And they're wondering why they're not getting anywhere. So I feel like, you know, do you think that that happens? Like we, we applied kind of the right information, but at the wrong time. Absolutely. And, 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 but I think you don't know what you don't know. And then when you get lost in the middle, you don't know your way out. And I, I see that commonly where, you know, you know, I'm a, a Damon passive self ligating, um, office. I've been using Damon PSL for years. And I see a lot of people try to adapt, you know, PSL, you know, lateral development mechanics and early elastics to a twin system that is different, you know, um, Hisham shows, Hisham Madawi shows, you know, all these four systems, how it is different in certain respects, depending upon the malocclusion. And I see these guys or girls complaining that their cases are too flared. And it's like, well, yeah, they have an MBT script and they, you know, didn't prescribe elastics properly. And your upper incisors are flared because you didn't think of the finish at the beginning. But if you, if you've never gotten to the finish, like you, you can't work your way back. You just get to the middle every single time and you know you're unhappy. So hook yourself up with a mentor that has been able to stick the finish more often than not. And they could kind of get your brain to work through that 3D conceptualization at yeah. the beginning. It's, it's extremely valuable. Yeah. Are, have you had any mentors or people that you've really kind of looked up or learned a lot from in orthodontics? My, my residency program was so strong and I, I don't know if all my residents, residency classmates, you know, I'm not sure if everyone agrees with me, um, that we had a, a great program, but I had some of the old Illinois guys that were trained back when the program was just, you know, there's no question it was number one. Those old school mechanics, you know, Andy Haas was there, Bernie Schneider, you know, Terry Selke was there, like all of these 
guys got a mix and I kind of just picked and pulled. And then there were some younger progressive guys. So I felt when I came out that my clinical training was pretty good. And I tried to buy into a practice that didn't work out so well, but the orthodontist, she was strong. Clinical ability was really strong. She had some old school ways of doing stuff with some progressive stuff. And I kind of picked and choose and you know, everything kind of like blended together at the right time. And then early in my practice career, when I was starting practices, there were pedo models. So I had to kind of figure out phase one. So, you know, as Roy King says, I, you know, I keep playing in the rough. I need to play from the <laughs> fairway, but I think playing in the rough or, you know, scrambling from underneath trees, uh, for so long in the phase one realm has really helped open my eyes to some outside the box mechanics, um, that apply to regular old comp cases too. Um, so I've kind of picked and choose, you know, along the way I've had some really good mentor impact opportunities and I've just kind of sapped them for what they were really good at and not to say to use them, but I opened my ears and shut my mouth. Um, as I tell my kids all the time, they don't always do that, but it, you know, you learn more when you keep your mouth shut and you just open your ears and listen. And I was just lucky and fortunate, but yes. Yeah. Um, have there been any change? I mean, changes that you've made recently in your practice in the last year or two, or is there anything that you're doing or, or changes in your system that you, that you're excited about or you feel are making a difference for your patients? Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, we went through, through some exponential growth and I kind of outgrew a lot of my practice systems, business and clinical. And I, I was forced uh, to be a lot more efficient. So I've been changing um, some some clinical efficiencies and, and testing some stuff out. The things that I've been doing for years just weren't scalable with, you know, seven assistants rolling at the same time. They just needed too much of my doctor time. So we've been trying to simplify systems and work on our efficiency, extend some appointment intervals. They don't always work out. Um, so the trials and tribulations of kind of running at estimate or slightly overestimate, which we battled back at. Um, that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. And finally, after two years, cause you know, all these cases are working their way through, right. I, you know, I can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's, it's a constant hustle. It's a constant struggle. Even when you think that you figured it out and all of a sudden you're seeing 30 to 50 more patients in a day, you realize you really haven't and you have to reinvent the wheel. So, you know, when you, you ask me if, you know, at the beginning, if everything, if you could have your cake and eat it too, if you could be the clinical and the business guy, you can, um, up to a certain point, I feel like uh, I, I've re I reach my limit at a certain volume of patients in a day. Yeah. And over the last two years, I've kind of figured out I'm never going to see 200 patients in a day. I'm never going to see 150. That's just not the way my brain has worked. Right. I'm kind of like, you know, at, 90 patients I'm maxed out you know so then I think it's a good a good pace a 90 patient day is a good pace for me anyway sure you know I know you've been uh, a fairly early adopter of intraoral scanning and and you know all of the things that go along with that I actually just purchased a, a scanner last month um, what advice kind of would you give me as someone who's kind of new to the game and and getting into it 
It's like any of your other clinical or business efficiencies. You have to dissect what you're doing and figure out your workflow in order to really integrate it or change and to execute that change into your system. Um, I haven't since probably about a year out of residency, so for a long time now, I haven't fit bands in my practice and taken a pickup impression for any appliances, for expanders, for anything. We've always taken impressions and had the lab fit bands. About three and a half years ago, uh, we adopted the litho scanner. Um, not the best scanner in the world, but it forced me to really, um, for our staff, our clinical team, to get uh, their scanning systems down. We've been scanning and indirect fitting off of scans through Neolab, um, off of scans for three and a half years, but even off of full out stone impressions for about probably close to nine years now. So we worked out a lot of those scan SAP delivery a week and a half um, appointments and that flow a long time ago. But you got to jump in. You got to know what to look for. You have to hook up your hook yourself up with a lab um, that. We're not doing printing in-house yet. I still can't justify the expense and I can't figure the workflow out for our volume. Um, it would be a, a major disruptor. But if you could hook yourself up with a good lab like Neo, um, just you got to jump in and figure out how long it takes to scan, what your cost per tip is. I'm not sure what scanner you have. I've yeah, about the three shape. Now. Okay. That's a good scanner. I think the tips are like 150, but they're supposed to be good for 150 autoclaves or something like that. Yep. And then the, like the, the element, the Itero element tips are about $2 and 80 cents a piece. So right. if you imagine, you know, I, I go through a lot of tips all day long. All my new patients, when they come in, um, if they're not phase one, if they're comprehensive or adults get scanned. They get simulated. So that's $3 every single patient, but it's a lot easier to have those records up front to do an educated consult to show them what they're going to get. And then if they don't commit that day, then they could commit at any time. And I have all of that data there for the phase one kids. We scan them for expanders. They get sept and they come back a week and a half later. They, you know, even for, you know, exit strategy for, bonded retainers and scan and posterior bracket removal and then they get debonded in delivery it's really nice on the on the workflow it allows us to get nice and efficient yeah that's kind of where i'm at i'm trying to figure out what you know is the best use of this in our practice and what are the things that we you know we want to change and how we want to go to it um you know i I did one of these phase ones yesterday for an expander where we you know scanned and sapped and you know we'll yeah i haven't haven't delivered it yet so we'll see and then and then i'm also interested in the some of the fixed retainers i use a lot of fixed lower retainers that i bend myself and i I always feel like those are one of those things where you know some days i've got it most days i feel like i and then there's some days where i'm just sitting there trying to fit this retainer it's doctor dependent i mean it's all your doctor time you're way more valuable than bending uh retainer wires yeah well like i say sometimes i've just i can just bang it out and then other times i'm just it's like i can't do it at all it's like what happened (laughs) you know but it's it's like anything it's you know like a, a lab tech from a good lab they bend wire their pliers are there they're in that mindset they're yep. doing the like appointments you know, we do um indirect uh we do like an 026 gold plated lower wire now that's just bonded 
um, with pads on the threes. For a, the longest time, we would do in-house gold twisted wires, but now we take a scan, the retainers are spot on. They come back with a double Essex already blocked out over it. And it's easy. And the yeah. staff, it's easy. And there's, there's a, a indirect bonding jig that's already over it. So um, it's idiot proof. You just have to, I still sit down and I make, I check it and I throw flowable on and then I stand up, I write my note and then take they, the girl, the staff takes braces off and I remove adhesive and they do a delivery and then they walk out. I mean, it's easy. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about, uh, pragmatic orthodontist on and pragmatic elite and kind of what, what your goals are with those groups and, um, kind of where you see those going. Those groups have grown, um, the pragmatic orthodontist, uh, back in the day when it had 400 members, I would have never envisioned that it would have 2,700 members. I think I have, uh, 450 requested members, um, for that group right now. I just, it's vetting all the members and trying to get the, the feel of the group to remain the same as the group has gotten that large, um, has probably been the biggest hurdle, but, uh, it is the biggest clinical, well moderated. And it's not just cause it's me, um, a group out there. It's, there's rules. Everybody respects the rules, which is nice. Everyone's polite and respectful and there to learn the data set that's there for the last two and a half years is crazy. There's something like 2,900, uh, posts or threads with just right. immense data, you know, and we created the, the website, the pragmaticorthodontist.com, uh, website off of it. And it looks at the Facebook API which is great and it indexes it in real time. So you can search for the, the stuff that you want. And on that site coming up, we're going to start cataloging threads by group, uh, class one, class two, class three, open by, you know, all of that stuff. And then we're going to have some, uh, on demand learning. You know, it's just a really good learning opportunity for younger orthodontists to come out. There's, you know, 75% of the members of that group are, either residents, you know, late residents or out within their first five years. And then the other 25% are just older orthodontists, just sharing wisdom, uh, trying to help people through. So it's a training ground and that uh, makes me happy because it's good for our profession as orthodontists are trying to maintain our share of the market with everything else that's going on. Um, but that being said, it, it is a big group. So some of the more experienced clinicians have been reaching out to me for a long time to set up a geo restricted group. Um, and I did that, uh, recently there's about 130 members. It's called the pragmatic orthodontist elite. Um, and that group is 75% of its members are, have been out for 10 years. You know, I think eight years is, is the kind of like the line in the sand, um, and so there's been a lot of cases under, under your belt, figured out some systems. There's a lot of, uh, key opinion leaders on there from every, um, bracket manufacturer or technique out there. And it's really, uh, intensive learning ground for younger orthodontists. There is a membership fee, but it is the best money that you will ever spend. It will accelerate your clinical learning, um, 
really, really fast. So my, my long-term plan for that group is to kind of have that as when you make your real commitment to clinical learning is that's where you'll go in that group. Um, I've capped membership to 200 members for this year and then lifetime, I'm going to cap it at 300. Um, I just want to keep it small. I don't want it to get overly large. And, you know, we talk about some business aspects of clinical efficiency and just, you know, aspects about, you know, why are you using this band or bracket or technique and how do you make the money work out? Because that bracket band or technique is three times the price of this other one down the road. So, and, and there's some key opinion leaders that have figured all of the metrics out around that and are sharing openly in that protected group, which has a non-disclosure act. It's nice. I know you're in that group. So. I am. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I, I agree with you that this is, this is a, a great investment. And I also, though, think that for you, the challenge obviously is, is the moderation, is the controlling the kind of the culture and the vibe of, of these groups. But, but I, I would, I want to just say for anyone listening to this, because my, my sense is that most people that are participating in Prague Ortho really have no concept of, I'm sure, the amount of work and time and thought that kind of goes into this. I mean, when you log on to Facebook and you go to Prague Ortho, it just kind of seems to happen. But I, I know that there's a tremendous amount of you know work that goes in. And so I want to thank you for that. And I and I, I just want to point out that that I know that, that that's that's a fairly serious commitment of time and energy. Yeah, for sure it is. And thank you. Yeah, not many people realize that it's, it's like raising children and it's not that I'm paternalistic by nature. But when you see, uh, you know, a splintered group of orthodontists and a competitive mindset posting cases and they're all kind of fighting for their alpha position, just kind of breaking that down and, and making everybody open their hearts and their minds to, to a learning experience where we don't have to be like that and to kind of mold that culture over time and then get a larger group of people to share in that mind thought, that brain thought. I mean, it, it was a ton of work, but now that it's there, it's, you know, it's kind of like the family takes care of itself and I still have to moderate it heavily, but not as much as I had to when I was kind of forming the mindset. Sure. It's awesome. Awesome. It is. I think. I think. I think it's. I think it's fantastic. So, I, I. I have one more thing. I heard a rumor that you're going to be on the cover of the Progressive Orthodontist magazine coming up. I am. I am. Um, we just got one, so this must be coming up in a in a little bit. The AAO, the AAO edition. Yep. The the biggest one of the year, in my opinion. Not oh yeah. I'm on. I'm not because I'm on the cover, but. Uh, usually if you look at Ben's magazine, w- which has come a long way, it's such a solid publication now, not only through, um, advertising, but content editorial. It's so editorial heavy and it's still advertising light, in my opinion, when you kind of look at other, um, ortho towns of the world and other ones that are out there. Yeah. Um, it's solid. It's super solid. So I am going to be on the cover of the AAO edition. Um, I'm really excited about the cover shot. I'm ho- hopefully. Yeah, you've gone from you've gone from centerfold to cover girl. <laughs> centerfold to to cover. Yeah, yeah. this would be 
the second cover <laughs> this year. Great, right? Yeah. I, and I'm the guy that shies away from the camera, so. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, well, thank you so much, Derek, for, for joining us and for being on the podcast. Um, I think people are going to get a lot out of this conversation. Uh, you know, I want to thank you for your time, and I would encourage everyone to go check out uh, Prague Ortho online uh, on Facebook or uh, Prague Ortho Elite uh, if you're so inclined. I think, I think you get a lot out of that. But thank you again, Derek, so much, and, and have a great day. Thank you. You too. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Derek Bach as much as I did. If you're not already a member of Pragmatic Orthodontics, you really should become one. I'm not exactly sure what you're waiting for. Go online and become a member, facebook.com slash groups slash Pragmatic Orthodontics. And when you do join, participate. Post your cases, share your thoughts, comment. We all learn and grow together, and that's how this works. While you're there, you can join our podcast Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Elevate Ortho Podcast. And my goal is that it's a place where we can continue the conversation from these episodes. Our guests will be there. You can ask them your questions, make comments, and if there's any other thoughts that you have, please share them. That would be fantastic. All right, that's it for today. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.